Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Rifleman's Radio Show on Appleseed Radio. The Rifleman Radio Show is brought to you by the Appleseed Program. The Appleseed Program is a sole project of the Revolutionary War Veterans Association. The Revolutionary War Veterans Association is dedicated to teaching the absolute best fundamentals of rifle marksmanship program in America today, and at the same time, making sure that we are honoring those men and women who stood together, who sacrificed their fortunes, their families, and sometimes even their lives uh, in order that we could have the, the nation that we have today, that they could provide us with the freedoms and liberties that we have today, and so that we understand that it is our duty to safeguard those freedoms and liberties and to carry on the experiment in freedom that the American Revolutionary War began. <clears throat> We'd like to welcome to everyone to the show tonight. This has been a long, long day for me, and uh, probably for most of you guys, too. Uh, we're right in the middle of the Davila 310 Rifleman Boot Camp, uh, which is also right in the middle of a, uh, a big storm. So all day today we had... Uh, rain and mud and uh, and eventually we had to uh, to let the guys go uh, to seek some cover first in the uh, the motor home and then because they were all completely soaking wet and uh, the temperature had dropped really low <clears throat> they retired to the 
the hotel room that uh, Star Fox and Double L had gotten, and uh, <laughs> where there was heat, where there was a bathroom that had a roof on it, and uh, and uh, did their classroom, finished up doing their classroom there. <clears throat> I've been sending out uh, hundreds, and uh, in some cases thousands. I imagine a day I probably ran through about uh, close to 15,000 emails, uh, letting folks know what we're doing today, about the show tonight, uh, and uh, trying to to make sure that uh, that we have a good uh, second virtual muster night, which is what's going on tonight on the forum. So make sure that as you're listening to the show, that you check in to the uh, the forum, pop into your state board, and get uh, uh, get your get listed as uh, as here on your state board. And then check out uh, the events in your state, uh, the events and the stuff that needs work. Make sure that if you're an instructor that you are signed up for uh, the upcoming events that you can make. Uh, if there are jobs that uh, your state coordinators have posted, check out those jobs. See if there's not uh, one that you could, you could lend a hand with, that there's not some way that you could help uh, push the program forward in your own way. Also, tonight we're going to have uh, quite a few guests uh, on the show. And I'm looking for the uh, the RBC folks to, uh, once they get dried off, to uh, uh, to chime in and uh, get on the air and tell you about what uh, what we've been doing so far at the RBC. We're going to have the White Sands Missile Range instructors on. Uh, that was a whole big crew of them, almost 20 guys that uh, went out to New Mexico to the White Sands Missile Range. And put an event on there uh, for the uh, the troops there at White Sands, and then uh, starting at eight o'clock, we'll have uh, David Hackett Fisher on. Doctor Fisher is a Pulitzer Prize winning author. Uh, he is the the man that wrote the the textbook that we teach out of Paul Revere's Ride. But you know he's written many many other books as well. Uh, if you will uh, check out his name, go to, just Google his name, and you'll see uh, a long list of books. So we're going to be speaking with him about several of the books he's written and about uh, about how we uh, are interpreting the events of April 19th, 1775. So let's get started. Let's get, uh, let's get this show on the road, and uh, let's start it off with a reading of the the April... Uh, well, we'll just start off starting today. We'll run. We'll run into April starting today of the upcoming events. <clears throat> First thing we have is Augusta, Georgia, for the March 20th, 21st weekend. Canton, Mississippi, March 20th, 21st. Colebrook, Connecticut. Corpus Christi, Texas. Davila, Texas, this coming weekend. That's the uh, the apple seed that uh, butts up against the RBC. Escondido, California. Lancaster, Ohio, Lobelville, Tennessee, Mannheim, Pennsylvania, Osage Beach, Missouri, uh, Piru, California, Sacramento, California, Stinson, West Virginia, Yanceyville, North Carolina. Then we go to the March 27th, 28th weekend, which starts at Amarillo, the indoor range there in Amarillo. Uh, Buckeye, Arizona, Evansville, Indiana, Miamisburg, Ohio, Mayaca City, Florida, Ramsar, North Carolina, Socorro, New Mexico. 
that will start us off with the April 3rd and 4th weekend, which begins in Bate City, uh, Bate City, Montana, Lewiston, Idaho, and then that takes us to the April 10th, 11th, which is Crittenden, Kentucky, Las Cruces, New Mexico. And then we get started with the 17th and 18th weekend. Listen, folks, I, I don't know if you guys realize this. This has never been done before. No one, no organization has ever mounted simultaneous events coast-to-coast, border-to-border, 100 events across the United States to celebrate April 19, 1775. Most folks don't even know that the date happens. It comes and goes. It runs right across them like a, a deaf, dumb, and blind ghost. Nobody ever sees it or hears it. Nobody knows it's there. And yet this nation would not be here except for those men and women who had made a decision on that day to do something uh, to do something different. They made it. They came to a fork in the road, and they could have made a decision to go left or a decision to go right. And the decisions that they made that day are what has brought us the nation that we have today, what has brought us the freedoms and liberties that we have. <clears throat> All right. The weekend starts off in Albion, New York, followed by Almonds, Pennsylvania, Alton, Illinois, Athens, Ohio, Beckley, West Virginia, Bennington, Vermont, Bonfield, Illinois, Botano, North Dakota, Boulder City, Nevada, Brighton, Colorado, Broken Bow, Nebraska, Buckingham, Virginia, Burlington Flats, New York, Calverton, New York, Canton, Mississippi, Carrollton, Kentucky, Castle Rock, Washington, Castro Valley, California, Chambersburg, Pennsylvania, Cloverdale, Indiana, Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, College Station, Texas, Columbia, Maine, Columbiana, Alabama, Corona, California, Corpus Christi, Texas, Custer, South Dakota, Dalton, New Hampshire, Davila, Texas, Duluth, Minnesota, Durand, Illinois, Elbridge, New York, Elk River, Minnesota, Eureka, Kansas, Eureka, California, Evansville, Indiana, Fenton, Michigan, Fort Wayne, Indiana, Fountain, Colorado, Gainesville, Florida, Granville, Oklahoma, Gunnison, Colorado, Hartford, Connecticut, Harvard, Maine, Hernando County, Florida, Holderness, New Hampshire, Hubertus, Wisconsin, Kimmermere, Wyoming, Kingsport, Tennessee, Knob Creek, Kentucky, Lemoore, California, Lobelville, Tennessee, Lodi, Wisconsin, Manchester, Tennessee, Mannheim, Pennsylvania, Maynardville, Tennessee, Miamisburg, Ohio, Middlebury, Vermont, Midland, Texas, Montrose, Indiana, Mayakas, or Montrose, Iowa. Uh, I'm having to move the screen fast to keep up with how fast I'm reading it, so uh, if I make a mistake, you guys just post it there in the... uh, on the online chat, Mayarca City, Florida, New Bremen, New York, New Philadelphia, Ohio, North Little Rock, Arkansas, Osage Beach, Missouri, Payson, Arizona, Pelham, New Hampshire, Peterborough, New Hampshire, Piru, California, Purdue, Tennessee, Ramsar, North Carolina, Raton, New Mexico, Red Bluff, California, Ridgecrest, California, Rio Rancho, New Mexico, Rochester, Minnesota, Roswell, New Mexico, Sacramento, California, St. Augustine, Florida, San Luis Obispo, California, Santa Barbara, California, Saratoga Springs, New York, Sherburne, Louisiana, Sierra Vista, Arizona, 
Spooner, Wisconsin, Stinson, West Virginia, Suwamico, Wisconsin, Three Forks, Montana, Vienna, Ohio, Virginia Beach, Virginia, Washburn, Missouri, Waterman, Illinois, Weatherby, Missouri, Williamstown, Missouri, Winslow, New Jersey, Yanceyville, North Carolina. Wow. Wow. I just, I'm amazed. I just burned through a list. There is twice as many events in this one day than we had in the first year. Twice as many events in the first day in this on this one weekend than we had in the first year. Wow. That's just uh it's just amazing. Listen, you guys you you are making this work. You're making this program work. I am I look at the program at times, and I think, oh, my gosh, it's going so slow. Uh, are we going to make it in time? You know, like the folks in the, the old raggedy pickup truck, they're racing beside the railroad tracks, and here's a train. It's bearing, barreling along, and here's a truck. It's running along, and, and are we going to make it across the tracks in time? Are we going to get cut off by the train? Are we going to get run over by the train? And then I take a look, take a step back, and I look at it. And I go, "Oh my gosh, we're still in our infancy, and we're uh, we're growing at the speed of light." <clears throat> and now, listen, guys, don't uh, don't take this as any kind of a, a notion that you can relax or you can slow down because because you can't because we don't know how much time we have. We don't know uh, how fast. We're going to have to travel in order to make it in front of the speeding train. And we have to. All right? We have to. We have to make sure that we are maintaining the uh, this nation, that we're safeguarding the freedoms and liberties that the founders paid so dearly for. <clears throat> and the only way we're going to be able to do that is by making sure that each and every American is is gotten off the couch that uh, they have been spoken to that they have that somebody has given them a a sharp uh shake and got them to wake up to wake up the the inner american that american the sleeping american inside them and making sure that they understand that they have an obligation uh to this nation that they have duties that uh, that they are required to do by calling yourself an American, by living in this nation. <clears throat> and that's what our program is about, waking up the sleeping Americans. You know, this nation has, has functioned quite well for uh, 234 years uh, just on the brilliance uh, of the documents set down by the Founding Fathers. But no system... Uh, is immune to rust, to uh, to lime scale and corrosion, and uh, and our nation is no exception. Uh, it needs to be, it needs some tender loving care. It needs some, uh, uh, it needs to have that scale 
uh, knocked loose, that rust uh, scrubbed off. It needs to be polished uh, and oiled and, and maintained in order to make sure that the, uh, the engine of the nation is running uh, with, a, uh, with a fine purr. <clears throat> All right. What we'd like to do is, uh, is bring on the guys from the White Sands Missile Range. So uh, if you, the, you guys that are on the online chat, uh, post, uh, post the first uh, or post the, uh, the first six numbers uh, for, you, for those of you, you who are with the White Sands Missile Crew and uh, post it on the online chat. So I can start bringing you guys on. Now we have uh, we have a brand new system here that I, I still am not sure exactly how it's going to work with the uh, uh, the upgrade. Uh, I've got I've got a whole lot more buttons on here. I went from a uh, from the Cessna dashboard to the Boeing seven. 47 dashboard. <clears throat> so, guys, please be a bit patient with me. Now, from what I understand, uh, nobody's going to get, uh, uh, nobody's going to have to worry about not being able to make it onto, uh, uh, if you call, you shouldn't get a busy signal anymore because uh, you should be able to get in line uh, no matter what. Uh, I think we've got in excess of 50 or 60 uh, open lines on this new one. And, uh, we also have the ability to talk to you before you come on air, etc. Uh, so I'm going to end up having, I'm going to end up asking somebody uh, to give me a hand with the radio show from now on, <clears throat> because I actually it, it's too much now for me to handle uh, by myself, because there's just too many buttons. There's too many buttons and switches. There's no way that I can interview the guest ahead of time while I'm talking to somebody else. So I'm going to have to have some folks that come on and uh, or somebody that's going to be running the uh, like the switchboard for me, and uh, and they can just help me uh, uh, as far as sorting out the callers, etc. Uh, you can talk to the callers, and then you can type in the information about what they want to talk to talk about uh, into the screen that I'm looking at. But uh, but we're going to work through it tonight. So the White Sands Missile Crew, as you guys are posting your uh, your numbers on here. I'll start bringing you guys on. You can start uh, discussing uh, the events at White Sands. All right. Let me see here. We've got... Uh, okay. Making sure I'm getting the, the buttons on here right. <clears throat> All right. Is this uh, Blue Feather? Yes, hello. Hey, Blue Feather. Welcome to the show. Blue Feather is one of the instructors that uh, went out to White Sands Missile Range, uh, and she also has a uh, she also has a semi zoo at her house. Uh, I think I hear one <laughs> of the birds there now. Welcome yeah. to the show, Blue Feather. Uh, oh, give thank us a you. Down on how things went there at uh, White Sands. Well, if you were privy to the Wismer um, uh, uh, thread on the uh, forum. Uh, Dan, my husband, Taos Glock, was actually trying to post a lot of information about what happened. 
pretty much we had uh, gale force winds for four days. Uh, so we started out cold and windy and we got rained on and hailed on and winded and that went on and on and on for days and days and days and then Friday we had awesome weather. It was sunny and calm. Um, so it was a real challenge for the instructors and it was an incredible challenge for the troops. They were wearing full body armor and helmets and uh, many of them really were pretty unfamiliar with their weapons as they called them. So it was a real challenge. Well, and Paul, in the beginning, Astronaut yeah. Ray was there yeah. with you guys, and then now he's here at the RBC at the Rifleman's Boot Camp with us now. And uh, yeah. he told me he was telling me about the wind there. And, you know, we teach uh, during the Rifleman's Boot Camp. We'll teach the uh, the sections on uh, actual distance shooting, and then it also involves uh, wind estimation, etc. Now you get down to the bottom of the wind estimation chart, and it has uh, like 32 to 40 knots in the wind. And the question immediately following, once you determine that, is why are you there? <laughs> why well, are you standing guys, there in the wind trying to shoot? And he said that yeah, you guys said that was the that was the situation most of the time there. Yeah, it really was. Um, I mean, you could feel yourself being buffeted around when you were standing up, and, and when these guys were prone, you know, they were getting sand blown in their eyes. It was all in their gear. Uh, you know, it was just everywhere. Uh, but my understanding is that that's pretty much the conditions that they're going to have to be in. And so it was really good training. You know, it was miserable, but it was good training. Well, that's, so. exactly, that's exactly right. And, uh, you know, it's not just, it's not just uh, for them. You I mean, it was perfect for them. Because as you say, you know, they're headed to a place where they're going to get gale force winds in the desert and sand, et cetera, et cetera. But... That can happen here too, as evidenced by the by the uh, the windstorms there in New Mexico. That can happen here uh, in Davila. I've got some photographs uh, that are posted that show the the rifles laying there on the line, and on the windward side, there's a big uh, berm of sand that's as high <laughs> as the rifle. You know, on the on wow. that side, and uh, so you can you can get those conditions anywhere. And Appleseed yeah. is about the only place that you're going to go that you're going to continue to shoot even during those conditions so that you learn how your rifle system works in those types yeah. of weather situations. Yeah, yeah. The, the most amazing thing about this whole, this whole week, frankly, was the incredible change in attitude. The first two days, the troops were really reluctant to be there. They weren't happy because of the conditions. We were telling them to do things that were different from what they had been told to do previously, and, and they weren't shooting any better. But something happened Wednesday morning, and they started shooting really well. And from then on, they started trusting us and believing in us. You know, they didn't want to use the sling at first, and then they changed their mind, and they actually asked to use the sling. People were asking to stay with iron sights instead of going to their ACOGs. So, so something different happened, and from then on, it was the whole atmosphere was different. You know, we really connected with these guys, and all of us felt like we did um, a real good service for them. Wow! So, so no, it was it was so the first it was really days, important. The first two days, they were having a hard time with everything, with the instruction, with the, uh, yeah. the techniques, etc. And then everything. What about the history? How did they react to the history? Uh, they they didn't get a whole lot of history, but what what they did get um, 
I think they were really intrigued by. It, it's just like we see it at regular apple seeds. This is stuff that these guys had never heard before. And um, one of the things that happened was we, when we broke up into smaller groups, and every time we had some downtime, we tried to tell them a little bit of history, like dangerous old men stories, things like that. And then the other thing is we tried to relate it to more recent stuff, like events that happened in Vietnam where um, somebody's ability to shoot well changed the course of an outcome of an event. So you know, these guys are young. Some of these people are, were 19. So you know, they, have very, they have very little life experience, and they have very little understanding of perspective of where they stand in things. So I think it was a real eye-opener to, to, to hear about you know, things that Americans had done. Wow. So, yeah, it was it was it was really a wonderful event. I'm very very fortunate that we got we got to go, and and I think the consensus is if there's ever a a military type apple seed, if you can get to one, do it because it's it's certainly worthwhile. You'll feel like you've done, you know, a good service. Right. Okay. I'm gonna yeah. bring a don't don't hang up. I'm just gonna bring another call okay. on the line with us. Uh, Chris, are you there? Chris, can you hear me? OG? Yeah. Yeah, I'm right here. Okay. Were you at the White Sands Missile Range? No, sir. I got to talk to Pop today. Uh, Pop probably will call in, but me and him talked for about an hour, so uh, I don't want to bust his bubble. He's got all kinds of good stuff to tell you. Okay, well, hold on. I think he's. I think I got him uh, right here, too. Pop, you're on the line? I'm here. Okay. How yeah. are you going? God, it was uh, honestly, Scout one of the very best experiences of my entire life. And I've been around a while. Meeting everybody, like like uh, all, all the instructors from California, Arizona, and Illinois, Missouri, and uh, New Mexico. Golly gee. Uh, and, and that was a big part of it, but uh, just the satisfaction of knowing that uh, that these guys have a confidence uh, Friday afternoon that they didn't have Monday morning uh, and us knowing that we feel better that they're going to come back in one piece and and be back with their families one day. Uh, it's just wonderful. It, it, it's, it's, and I think uh, all the instructors uh, actually learn more about instructing uh, than they ever expected. I know I did. Uh, and I just can't say enough about it. So whoever it was, was it Blue Feather just said, if you ever get a chance to, to do a military uh, apathy, do it. Don't turn okay. it down. Okay, guys, hold on. I'm going to give you all some fair warning. I'm bringing, I'm opening Sam D's mic up. So everybody yeah. over to your ears. Oh. <laughs> Sam, Did you see Sam's? <laughs> I put my shovel down. All right, okay. <laughs> well, welcome to the show, Sam. Thank you. Thank you very much. Listen, I'm going to start this off with uh, with telling you uh, what a great photograph I have here up on my screen now of you. <laughs> for, for those of you guys that aren't uh, that didn't catch this, uh, you can see you can find it on the forum. There's a great <laughs> photograph of all the instructors at uh, White Sands Missile Range. Now, Pop, what happened in this photograph? Well. Uh, uh, Ball Dragon came to us right. Uh, they, it, this was Friday afternoon before we all left. We'd all finished up on the range. We're back at the billets, and Ball Dragon comes to me and says, uh, 
here, uh, I want you I want you to put this on uh when we go to take our pictures and uh but don't tell uh, Sam and don't let Sam know, don't let him see you doing it. What it was was a uh, fake mustache with the handlebar mustache like Sam's. And uh so how we pull this off I don't know, but uh every one of us <laughs> there's like twenty instructors and and uh, uh we we put these mustaches on. Sam's kneeling down in front, and we take this picture. Several of them, and and uh, of course, uh, we all have these uh, handlebar mustaches on. It was kind of funny. <laughs> yeah, when you look at the people here, you can see it's there's Sam. He's he's got his very serious. Got his 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 instructor look going there. He's got his white tans missile range, hardcore to the bone. Uh, yeah, facial expression going. And poor guy, right behind him are 20 instructors with handlebar mustaches stuck on their faces. Sam, now you, they said you didn't have any idea this was going on. What did you think when you saw that picture? Well, I, I like the picture. I have to tell you that I uh, I had some locally developed intel. Oh, no. Uh -oh. Someone had left a wrapper for one laying around. Uh-huh. And then I found another rapper for one laying around. And I said, well, something's going on here. <laughs> but uh, i got to tell you, I, I really did like that. Only friends can do something like that. And, now, which one and it's one good to have friends. Sam D or Blue Feather, one of you guys are going to have to strangle some of those birds. They're mine. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, give us a rundown on the uh, on the events there, Sam, because uh, from what I, from from speaking to everybody who uh, that I've spoken to that has that went went to the event, I haven't talked to any of the soldiers yet, but I spoke to uh, uh, several of the instructors, and they said that it just went absolutely fantastic. Well, I, I can't fill you in as much as the rest can. I was only able to work two days. And believe it or not, the two days I worked, I spent both of them in the pit. No kidding. Well, I had uh, very minimal instructing time, just because of the way it worked out. All right. Well, uh, let's see. Who else is there? Who else is is on here that uh, that I haven't brought on yet for the show? Blue Feather. <coughs> How did uh, not just the soldiers? How did the uh, the leadership uh, react? What did they think about the uh, the program and about about what you guys were doing for the uh, for their men? I I, th I think they thought very highly of it. Uh, I think the goal initially was that we could get the troops up to shooting um, to a particular standard out to a distance 500 yards or 600 yards. Uh, and I think initially we were kind of disappointed in that. Um, but when we had, uh, they did a, a huge number of statistics on, on which shots hit the targets at distance, and that's where Sam was doing a lot of work. He, he and the people in the pits were taking down these long-range targets and, and marking them so the, sh so the shoulders could see where their hits were going and all that kind of stuff. So they were really busy in between the, 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 the shots fired. Um, but when we when and then they also kept statistics of everything. They had a spreadsheet of all the numbers, and the hits out to, I think it was 400 yards. They were connecting 
um, they were hitting targets. Do you remember the statistics, Sam? I think it was better than 25%. I mean, it was it was pretty high. Um, and I think 500 yards, it was 15%. Was it overall? Uh, overall, it was in that that range. Although several of the uh, soldiers were doing significantly better than that. Right. We and can't uh, get too specific, honestly. Right, right. They were good. Yeah, I don't want I don't want to talk about uh, any numbers or anything, but I, I do want to uh, I, I do want to I did want to know if they what the troops felt if they said, hey man, this is uh, this is exactly what I needed. Plus, they they have to remember, as do we, that the uh, the skills and techniques that we gave that you guys gave them and the gaps we give to folks uh, are not uh, uh, they're not they they continue to progress. They continue to grow each time you uh, shoulder the rifle, each time you dry fire. So you set them on a path uh, where they can be continuous improvement. Uh, I was just wondering if uh, uh, if there was any immediate feedback. Oh, well, they, they certainly knew that they shot substantially better than they had at the beginning. Um, and, and that was one of the reasons why they, there was this mental turnaround, where, why people suddenly got much more positive about it, because they were seeing vast improvement, like we usually see at an apple seed. So the troops were really happy, and I think, I think overall the, the top echelon that came to see what we did, I think they were really happy too. They could see that there was a substantial improvement in a very short period of time. And um, they gave us all, uh, all the instructors, uh, we were given a, a nice little certification thing that said that we had worked for them that has their, their all their little insignias and it had their um, their motto I guess is sapper steel so so that's our inside inside uh, line that all the people who worked at Wismer are part of sapper steel <laughs> well that sounds great and uh, you know I've I talked to uh, several of the folks, uh, and then we had uh, we actually had uh, some guys here from uh, the Air Force uh, this week. Uh, the Air Force uh, uh, IED, the Explosive Ordnance folks that uh, had just come back from Iraq, and uh, and a lot of people we work with, the engineers, and uh, I've got a, a medical. Uh, brigade that I'm going to that I'm going to start working with this next month. A lot of the folks think that uh, that their ability to use their rifle is a secondary uh, uh, or even farther down the list part of their job. But it's in the best interest that uh, every one of our troops uh, be able to be the master of their rifle, be able to master that tool uh, as well as they do any other and. Uh, and you guys did a great job as far as making sure that they're well on the way toward that. Uh, anybody got any uh, any funny stories about any of the uh, uh, any of the events there? Well, well, Scout. Yes, sir. There, uh, in the weeks coming up, I'm sure you'll you'll hear hundreds of uh, anecdotes about individual little stories about about the week um, I was uh, it was noon on Friday uh, when uh, we were uh, back eating lunch and we were getting ready for the next course of fire 
and at 500 yards. And so I was helping a guy from uh, a soldier from the uh, South Pacific Island of Palau. He wanted to become an American citizen, so he had joined the army. And uh, he was two weeks out of boot camp, so he was brand new there in New Mexico. And uh, uh, like everybody else, he was catching on to it. So here we're talking about wind influence on uh, on firing around, and uh, we're going over this little formula that we use in apple seed, and uh, you know the one about uh, uh, wind and miles per hour times distance in hundred yards divided by whatever the weight of the bullet is. Uh, in this case, seven. And he, uh, I heard someone call my name, and I looked around, and they called it again. I looked behind me. And it was the battalion commander and his first sergeant. And I, I told the gentleman that I was working with, I said, just a minute, I'll be right back. And uh, the colonel wanted to know what this math I was doing was. And I explained a little bit about it. But uh, uh, little things like that, I, I think the, the uh, not just the troops, but the uh, the brass and the... And the uh, Battalion really uh, seemed to uh, understand what was going on and appreciate it. It seems so. You'll see uh, you'll see lots of little anecdotes like that come out uh, over the next few weeks, I'm sure. But um, it was just an exhilarating experience. Yeah. Now you told me something on the phone, Pop. You said that when you went to uh, this event, that you actually started listening to the instructors there and you started learning stuff. You know, Scout. Uh, you know, I, I've, I've instructed it at a whole bunch of apple seeds already in my lifetime, uh, and this time was was very different. I mean, uh, I've been down with a shooter before, uh, looking at what they're doing and so on and so on, but this time it was like watching and learning to see what they're thinking while they're shooting more than ever before. I mean, we'll, we'd be like three inches from their face where we're watching what's going on with their trigger finger and their eyes and their, and, and just really getting into their minds. And it, it's just incredible. Uh, and, and being able to help them improve their marksmanship. Well, I'm glad that this broke, that this caused it to break for, break through for you and your instruction. Do you have any kind of idea on why it happened? Uh, why? Yeah. Uh, I guess, as much as anything, Scout, it's because every one of us instructors out there um, knew how important what we were doing uh, was going to be to the men that were headed out uh, overseas here next month, and uh, everything that we could possibly do to help them understand what it was they needed to learn and to learn it uh, became the paramount thing. I mean, we, at, at like an Appleseed RBC, at night, oftentimes, we'll kick back and and joke around and get to know each other and 
and stuff. We didn't really do that. I mean, we we had fun, but after the the day was over, we'd go back to the billets and grade targets, and and uh, Ron, son of Martha, would uh, wouldn't <laughs> you know? We'd all be wanting to go take hit the showers and get something to eat, but no, we needed to spend an hour and a half doing uh, an AAR, and and then we might get to get a little bit to eat, and uh, then we grade targets. And then we'd design the course of fire for the next day, and somewhere in there we might get to bed by ten or eleven. Uh, it was it was uh, uh, quite an experience just just uh, staying up with uh, the the I guess you'd say the workload, the, doing what we needed to do for to prepare for the next day. Right. So um, uh, it was it was uh, a good exhilarating experience, but it wasn't fun in the sense that we went out partying or we didn't even go out to to eat supper you know it was usually just right there at the barracks all the time well sounds like you guys uh sounds like you guys had a great uh great event now any of the rest of you guys that uh, are listening uh i'm not let me see i'm trying to see if you if i see any of the other uh numbers here for any of the folks if you uh if you're in the chat and uh, you've called in then uh, put your if you'll put a uh the first six numbers of your phone if you'll put in the chat then i'll bring you guys on i'm just reserving this yeah. time right now for I the think, uh, uh for the chat yeah, i heard the, i saw bob baba fett was on i don't know if he's on the phone or not but i saw his uh he was I saw on, him on the there. i to put his number uh up there i'm just trying to i, I want to i don't want to to uh, ignore folks uh, on the switchboard, I just wanted to uh, to try and reserve most of the airtime uh, for those people that were at the White Sands Missile Range. Uh, Sam, you have anything else to any more to add? Uh, no, just that it was a great experience, and uh, just like Fort Stewart, I think we all learned more than the troops did just through being exposed to. Instructors from different parts of the country. I think it's really important that uh, people get out and get exposed to what's being taught at the other parts of the country. Even though we are pretty standardized, how we do it sometimes is different. And you Definitely. can learn a heck of a lot. <clears throat> Definitely. Now, I think that was a that, that was I think a really uh, good thing for you guys at this event. You had 20 instructors here, and I always tell uh, the instructors that 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 I make here in Texas, uh, you know, that I love seeing them here in Davila. I loved having them here. But that's not what the program's about. You know, they've got to get out. They've got to get to other shows. They've got to see how other people instruct. Uh, I know myself. I mean, I, I am a complete 100% apple seed uh, instruction thief. Uh, if I see somebody doing something, uh, and it works uh, better than what I'm doing. I immediately uh, steal whatever they're doing, and I use it in my incorporate it into my show. Not only that, but you guys had uh, instead of just a few students, a few attendees, uh, you know, thirty, forty, fifty. Uh, you guys had a couple of hundred. So I think it's a, uh, and you had you had more than just two days also. So it gives you guys a really big boost as far as 
coming across a lot of uh, varied uh, problems and issues, and then getting to hear, you know, uh, 20 other instructors instructing, you know, and finding uh, uh, finding better ways to instruct and, uh, and 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 instructing more people at once. So I think it's a uh, I think it would be a very positive uh, experience for instructors. What about you, uh, Jill? Uh, I'm sorry, I was trying to type and listen at the same time. What's the question? <laughs> I was just saying that uh, did you uh, the experience of having uh, 20 other instructors here, and at the same time, instead of having just uh, 20 to 30 folks attending, having a couple of 100 attending, uh, it just gives you, uh, it's more of like a, uh, a speed learning process for the instructors also. Yeah, there were logistical things that were at issue with the wind blowing and a really, really long line. It was hard to hear. Um, it was hard to hear the line instructions, and and so we had to do a lot of echoing. We had to be really, you know, very much on up on what was going on. There were all kinds of things like that that wouldn't you wouldn't have at a normal apple seat. Um, I think one of the issues, in a way, is that we're all we're all shoot bosses, so we're all leaders. But um, because there was enough planning in the background and, and planning each night about who did what, uh, it seemed like it all fell into place really well. So I think we all worked together really well. Um, you know, and and uh, yeah, Sam and Sam and Pop are both right. We we learned from each other. We learned we learned techniques of teaching that um, we hadn't thought about. Uh, Pop needs to tell you the story about how he got people to uh, get in transitions really fast because uh, it was a great technique that I hadn't thought about before. But he needs to tell you, he needs to tell you that. <laughs> okay, Pop, let's hear it. Well, okay, okay. My we, we each instructor worked with uh, roughly five troops, and my guys were just going into the. Stage two and three, where you transition, it's like get the lead out, guys. Uh, you know they were taking up twelve, fifteen, eighteen seconds just getting down into position. So I told them, guys, you got three seconds. You got to when they say fire, you got three seconds to be ready to fire the shot. And they looked at me kind of funny, like no way. And I said, look, I'm going to show you how to do it. And you got to beat me. So what I would do, as Gil would, Gilliam would say, I'd do a swan dive into prone <laughs> and, and challenge him to beat me. And, and do you know, uh, they got pretty fast at it, where they could do it in, in roughly three to four seconds. And I, I worked with each one of them like that. Uh, but, but it was just showing them what they had to do in order to, to get save time on the back end so they could find their MPOA to fire the shots. But anyway, it, it worked out pretty good. I was challenging them all the time on something. And uh, I guess you could say it made a game out of it, but they enjoyed it. It, it, it kind of worked out real well. All right. Uh, Boba Fate, welcome to the show. You're on the line. Hey, Scott. How are you doing? Good. How's everything going with you? Oh, just uh, just recovering still, trying to trying to catch my breath. <laughs> it's, been, it's quite a week. Well, it sounds uh, 
Well, you've heard me speaking with the, the rest of the guys on here. Tell me your, give me your, uh, your opinion of how things went, your feedback on it. Well, it was as much learning experience for us as it was for the troops, I think. Um, there was really a chance for them and us to exercise those, those intangibles uh, in being a rifleman, you know, the persistence, the perseverance, the being able to adapt and overcome and, and roll with it and make it work. Um, the, uh, I think the real turning point on Wednesday, um, uh, Wednesday we started, uh, kind of dividing and, and setting up teams, uh, assigning, you know, five or six, uh, five or six soldiers to, uh, to a particular instructor and having work with them specifically. And then we kept those teams for the rest of the week. And, uh, I think at that point, you know, the, the guys could finally bond with us as apple seeders and, uh, and really take to heart what it is we were trying to, trying to give them. All right. Well, I just got some, uh, some of the uh, boot camp guys are showing up. I told you guys that, uh, that they got run yeah. off the, uh, they got run off the, the range today, not by wind. We just had, uh, Ice cold rain that uh, that never let up, and uh, you wimps. Yeah, <laughs> we we had hail on Monday. <laughs> hail. We had hail, and this hail, Scout, it didn't come down. It went sideways. And it went hard. sideways. It stung. It stung. Oh man. <laughs> well, we didn't have uh, the 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 problem here is that. Uh, as you go, as you guys know from being here, that it is a uh, it's a rural primitive site. So yeah, I mean they could have they could have gotten completely soaked and uh, and stayed in it. But then then where do you go after that? I mean you're uh, you are wet and soaked, and you got no dry place, you know. So we let them uh, take off a bit early and head into uh, head into uh, Temple to the uh, uh, to the hotel room that uh, Star Fox and Double L had, and they got uh, they got warmed up and stuff there. All right, so I'm going to bring uh, I'm going to bring Paul on. Paul was at the uh, uh, he's here at the RBC with me. And he was also at the White Sands Missile Range. Paul, welcome to the show. Well, good evening, Scout. I'm uh, glad to be here. Uh, as you said, we had kind of a rain of biblical proportions this afternoon, and Double uh, L and Star Fox uh, gave us access to their room at the Residence Inn, uh, where we did our uh, long-distance uh, marksmanship uh, instruction. Uh, we're a little bit ahead of schedule on that. Now, if the range will dry out, we can put all this to good use. <laughs> I don't know how dry it's going to be. Now we do have uh, several days of uh, of sunshine, and it looks like the rain has finally uh, passed us by. Uh-huh. And uh, I'm looking forward to it. Now uh, I'm sure in the morning it's, uh, it'll be uh, it'll be a little rough. Uh, the mud won't have dried up. The mud was a little bit uh, more than ankle deep on, on the firing line, and it was ice cold rain and. Uh, I believe that uh, Mark Alonso, when he when he went into town, he said that this evening, uh, Mark doesn't like the cold, and uh, he said that uh, 
never again, his words were, never again will I be cold at an apple seed. So I think he was going to uh, Academy this evening to buy one of those uh, those thermal insulated uh, diving suits or something <laughs> so that uh, so that he wouldn't have to uh, endure that type of torture. Yeah, it, it, it was it was pretty brisk out there this afternoon. I will say that I no longer have any of the New Mexico dust all over me, but I do have some of your pasture mud that I'm going to have to scrape off. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, we get the inclement weather, and I got to tell you that the uh, that at least uh, at least a third, if not more, of the apple seeds that I've instructed at have been inclement weather apple seeds of one type or another, all the way from uh, from snow to uh, to floods. You know, we had the an apple seed right in the middle of a hurricane here at the Davila location. We had uh, uh, we have had events in freezing rain, on and on. So so this is uh, come on in. <laughs> so. Uh, the the thing about that is that nowhere does any no one ever goes to the range and says, "Hey guys, listen, let's go and shoot, and uh, and let's shoot in the rain today, all right? Let's shoot in the rain in the mud, or let's shoot in the uh, the thirty knot constant wind in the sand, and uh, let's let's don't just shoot for a little while. Let's shoot for let's shoot for ten hours, and uh, let's see how our rifle systems work." Uh, when they're first uh, full of dust blown, and then it rains and makes mud inside the action, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, let's see how how everything runs uh, when that happens. Uh, they just don't do it. But we do at Appleseed. So you get to figure out, we force you to figure out how your rifle systems work. And you find out a lot about not just how your rifle systems work, <clears throat> but how you work. How do you react when you're ice cold, whenever the instructor says, all right, uh, this isn't the end of the show. This is just uh, lunchtime. We've got another six hours left, and we're going to keep doing AQTs in the rain. How do you react to that? And how, does, uh, how do you and your rifle react together? And uh, you find out a lot, not just about your rifle system, but about you, about yourself, about what kind of a heart you have, uh, what kind of stamina you have, what kind of a person, how you're made. <clears throat> so you get a lot out of that. From. All right, so uh, go on in, guys. <clears throat> All right, uh, we've got uh, another person here from uh, from the RBC. Mara, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's good to be here. Oh, so uh, <laughs> <laughs> very professional sounding, huh? <laughs> <laughs> and. Uh, uh, just, uh, just to let everybody know how it's going today in the uh, in the Davila uh, rain and uh, and just above ice here. Well, I'll tell you what, a rifleman persists. So because we were knee deep in the mud and the the slop, we we proceeded to uh, do some schoolwork. And Paul has thus initiated us on the wind uh, and oh, elevation, oh, and we really worked on MOA adjustments and so forth with our rifles, and I think all of us are one step better today, maybe ten. But we're, we're baffled, too. Because <laughs> somehow when he says it, it makes it more difficult than it is. <laughs> all right. Uh, Mark, 
I see you're not wearing your your insulated uh, thermal diving suit, but I I told everybody that you, the last thing you told me when you left here was that you were on your that you would never be cold again at an apple seed, and you were on your way to Academy right then and there to buy uh, to buy weatherproof apple seed gear. Yeah, well we got to Academy and all their winter stock is gone. So they have a great deal on shorts and muscle shirts and all kinds of good stuff like that. <laughs> yeah, needless to say, I'm still a little chilly, but uh, it's getting better. Yeah, and uh, that's because I have your sweatshirts, Mark. <laughs> oh, is that you, Pop? How are you? <laughs> yeah, you do have my sweatshirts. Right. Yeah, the uh, Mark was uh, whenever I saw him this morning and. Uh, and they were getting ready to post. Uh, they were getting ready to post the targets, and uh, and it was already. He was already uh, absolutely soaked, and he was standing there. He was he was trying to act like nothing was wrong, nothing was going on, everything was just natural and normal. But uh, his teeth were clenched, and his hands were were shaking, you know, like uh, uncontrollably. His head was kind of twitching around. I go, "How's it going?" He goes, "Oh yeah, everything's fine." And yeah, well, you know, at that point it was below sixty, so you know, thirty. <laughs> well, <clears throat> we've been talking to the RBC guys. Just came in, uh, but uh, we've been talking for the last hour about uh, the the guys at. Uh, at uh, the uh, White Sands Missile Range, and uh, what a great job they did. <clears throat> and uh, and I want to thank all of the folks involved in that. You know, we did the Fort Stewart, uh, Georgia event. It was an absolute uh, success for all of the uh, the folks involved there. Then we did the uh, uh, we've done a couple of other smaller things, and now we did the White Sands Missile Range. It has turned out to be a, a really great success for the uh, uh, for the folks at uh, at White Sands and for us as an organization. You know, we have uh, every time we do something like this, it helps us to grow tremendously. And uh, I want to thank each and every one of you guys involved in that. Uh, so give yourselves a big uh, pat on the back and. Uh, and know that uh, myself and everybody else uh, in the program also also gives you our thanks. And uh, we want you to keep posting the uh, the reports of the event and to uh, uh, and to come on again. We'll probably have you guys come on again this next Tuesday so that we can hear more about the event as the stories unfold. Uh, so thanks to each and every one of you guys uh, for what you did. All right. Now, as I told you before, we've got uh, – we have uh, David Hackett Fisher, the author of Paul Revere's Ride and uh, Washington's Crossing, uh, Freedom and Liberty, Albion Seed – on and on and on. If you're looking for for information about what happened at the beginning of our nation, about uh, about who we are as a people and why we do things the way we do, uh, this uh, these are the are the books 
that you need to, to read. Uh, I'm going to bring Dr. Fisher on with us. Dr. Fisher, you're on the air? Hello, Mike. How are, How are you, you today? doing this evening? I'm just fine, thank you. Call me Dave. All right, I'll, 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 it's going to be hard for me, but I'll do this. <laughs> I told you, you, you have, uh, because of your book, uh, you've achieved uh, like a, uh, a legendary status here with the Appleseed program. So I'm going to do my best. I'll call you Dave, though. Uh, thanks for coming on on the air, and uh, and I want to thank you too for for all the work that you've done uh, in writing this this huge volume of work. Uh, you you have the Paul Revere's ride that almost all of us are familiar with, but then you also have uh, Washington's Crossing, which uh, covers uh, the the most pivotal point of the American Revolution, which is uh, the very dark uh, end of 1776, and then you have the book uh, uh, Freedom and Liberty. Yes, that, Liberty uh, and Freedom. Right. Liberty and Freedom. I'm sorry, I I, I, I juxtapose. juxtapose pose that name every time I say it I believe anyway that one that that is a uh, it is a huge story uh, a, a multiplicity of stories that that define uh, freedom and liberty from the ideas of the founders all the way up to now and uh, and I told you last time I spoke with you I, that I had read uh, Albion seed also and was completely amazed uh, amazed to find out the the story behind why we do things the way we do, why we are the people we are, and uh, so thank you for all all of that work that you've done. Well, thank you, Mike. It's a pleasure to talk. Uh, each one of those books led to the next one, uh, and uh, I'm I, it's it's, a, it's I'm happy to to exchange thoughts with with people on on the radio. Well, we uh, I guess speaking about this. First of all, uh, what uh, what can you tell me about the uh, about the the way that uh, and you speak about this in the the introduction to your book Paul Revere's Ride uh, about the way that life is a a, a series of contingencies uh, a series of decisions made by real people and how history is the the record of the decisions that people made. Uh, at each at each uh, junction in the road, at each Y, uh, the decision that they made to go to the right or to the left, or or like, as you told me earlier today, right down the middle. Yes, I, I, historians uh, about uh, 10, 15 years ago uh, began to feel um, that something wasn't right with the way that history was being taught in the universities. Uh, the way we were teaching it, it was too deterministic. That is, we, where we wrote about history as if we were the objects of history rather than its agents. History happened to us. And the more we thought about it, uh, the larger that error uh, appeared. Uh, and uh, quite a number of us came at this at the same time. One of them was a book that I think many of your listeners will know well. It's my... Uh, a friend from school days, we went to school together, uh, James McPherson. He's a Civil War historian. And he wrote a book called Battle Cry of Freedom. He wanted to organize that book um, in, a, in a different way. And he did it around what he called turning points. And he called those turning points contingency, when the story might have gone one way or another. 
And then quite a number of other historians got into this, and I did it in Paul Revere's ride. But uh, we uh, we all agreed that we wanted to make history a more open process. That we did it differently. I got into the idea that uh, uh, this my story was about people making choices, and about choices making a difference in the world. And I called that contingency. And right. it wasn't just Paul Revere or George Washington. It was uh, uh, many people. It was a web of choices uh, on both sides. And that's what my books are about. Right. And you spoke about something, uh, in, I believe it was in Washington's Crossing. And uh, it's something that, that I had noticed for years and years, but I'd never heard anybody uh, speak about it or say anything about it until I read it uh, in your book, and that is, before something happens, something major happens, such as a war, uh, that it never, there's never uh, an unexpected broadside, even in the case of something like uh, the Japanese in Pearl Harbor. That, that was not a completely unexpected thing. What you have leading up to that is you have two groups, you have the, the two factions that are making decisions, that are making uh, uh, decisions on what they're going to do or how they're going to feel about things, and pretty soon they come to the uh, they come to the decision that this that the a uh, that some type of an event, a war, etc., is is a certainty, and they decide that it's going to happen uh, long before the event ever happens. I think that's right. That that, that happened in 1775. And I think it also happened in 1941. I think it may have happened in 1939 for the beginning of the Second World War in Europe as well. And <laughs> it was a process by which uh, people began to uh, despair of finding uh, any other solution but war. Right. Uh, and so the, the wars came. And uh, I, I, it was in 1775 when both the British uh, leaders – and also the American patriot leaders uh, both felt that war was becoming inevitable. And uh, historians like to debate about inevitability, but uh, uh, when people think something's inevitable, it tends to happen. Right. And uh, I think that's what uh, that's what went on in, in 1775. All right. And then <clears throat> one of the things that uh, that people talk about today is freedom. And liberty, and they talk about their individual freedom and their individual rights, etc. Now, the founding fathers had a a much different idea on freedom and liberty. Uh, they had, their idea was was one of uh, individual responsibilities and uh, collective freedoms, rather than how we see it today uh, when we talk about individual freedoms and. Uh, collective responsibilities it seems like it's uh, turned a bit backwards well i think that's right it, I, in in the revolution my understanding of what these men were about it was that they were that on the american side also on the british side they were they were mostly people of high purpose and uh, the purposes had something to do with liberty and freedom but they had many ideas of all of this i was amazed by the diversity of their thought i i the question was how can we know what they uh 
what they what they what what they uh, meant, what were they what what they were fighting for. We do have interviews. There's a famous interview with one of the soldiers who fought on the day of Lexington Concord. His name was Captain uh, Levi Preston. And he was asked. He said, "Why did you Why did you go to to uh, to, to fight on on the on, on that day?" And uh, they said, "Was it because of the Stamp Act?" And he said, uh, "He said I never saw any stamps." Uh, and he said, "Was it the Tea Party?" He said, "I don't drink tea." He said, "Was it because you read Locke uh, on the on the Great Principles?" He said. I never heard of of, of that man. Um, uh, all we had was the Bible and the and Watts's hymn hymn book. Uh, but he said, "Let me tell you uh, what we were about." He said, "This is what we meant to do. We'd always uh, run our own affairs, and we always meant that we would do so. The British didn't want us to be free, and we were determined that we would be. And that was the why why he thought he marched." on April 19th, uh, 1775. But then the question was, and he didn't tell us this, what did he mean by liberty and freedom? And he used those words. And he not only used them, but he drew images of them on on his powder horn, as many of these guys did. And uh, then I began to get into the words themselves, so liberty, freedom. They were just using these ordinary words. And I was amazed to see that, that though liberty had a meaning that I think we tend to assume it has always meant, which was that it was the condition of being um, independent um, uh, and in that way um, unlike a slave. But freedom had a very different meaning, and that took me completely by a surprise. I was amazed. I, I, I discovered that it had the same root as the word friend. And both of those words, freedom and friend, um, uh, came from an Indo-European word uh, Freya, that meant beloved. And I thought, that's a very a strange combination. And then I was uh, reading some other work, and suddenly it dawned on me that when, when these guys said that they were that they were for freedom, what they meant by freedom was the condition of being connected to other free people, and in that way, unlike a slave. So liberty, in one sense, meant separation. It meant autonomy. Uh, freedom meant, for them, connection. It meant the rights of belonging. What would the right of belonging be? Well, for them in New England, it was the right to go to town meeting and 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 to vote and speak out uh, on town affairs, to be connected to people in the town. And they, a good many of these people, believed in both liberty and freedom. Some of them were very much on the liberty side. Others were more on that idea of freedom as the rights of belonging the right of belonging to other free uh, people in a community. But uh, they they had very different notions of these things, different from ours. And, and a large part of it was that whether it was liberty or freedom, there was a very strong sense of responsibility uh, for, for uh, promoting those ideas uh, and for being part of a civic process. Right. And that's what we've forgotten. That's what we've lost a little bit. Right, and when you were talking about now, there's you know there's an online. I, I think I told you. I'm not sure if I did. There's an online chat that follows the radio show, and I have people commenting on it right now. They're talking about how they they use uh, uh, Preston's comments, uh, yeah. you know, in their uh, while they're speaking. And as soon as you mention that, and you point this out when you when you talk about Mr. Uh, Captain Preston, 
Yes, he's in, my, he's in both of my, most of my books. Captain Preston makes an appearance. Right, and um, when you when you were talking about him, you you pointed out the subtle the subtle twist, the subtle correction that he made on the interviewer. When the interviewer asked him, he said, "What made you go and fight?" And he, and he turned it back around. He said, "You mean what did we fight for?" Exactly. Nobody made us do anything. We do what right. we want to do because we're we're free individuals. And there was a historian who was interviewing him who had that idea of history as a very determinist process. And he so he asked Captain Barton, what made you do that? And right. Captain uh, Preston's made clear uh, nobody made him do that. He chose to do that. Right. Now, <clears throat> I told you, you we teach uh, all the instructors, the, the, one of the first things that they have to do, one of the first things they learn to do is shoot. But right behind that, is they have to learn to tell what we call the story. If you cannot tell the story, you cannot become an Appleseed instructor. That's just that's the way it is. The Appleseed program teaches rifle marksmanship, but we wouldn't we wouldn't have a program. We wouldn't be doing this if we weren't uh, as determined to present the history to the folks as we are. So what we have done is our theory on this, and we've developed what we call the story, and we tell the story in three parts. Uh, usually we'll do the first part on Saturday morning, uh, the second part at lunchtime, and then the third part on Saturday uh, evening. And what we've done is we've cut into the, the what we call the three strikes of the match. Uh, the first strike covering the events leading up to Lexington Green and then the events at Lexington Green. The second strike being from uh, when Smith formed his men back up on the road outside Lexington and continued on to Concord, and then the events at Concord and the North Bridge. And then the third strike, uh, whenever Smith has formed his men up there in uh, Concord and uh, deploys the the flankers to Arrowhead Ridge and then follows them all the way back to the beginning of the siege of Boston. And we call it the three strikes of the match story. And the reason we do is because uh, on the first strike – of the match, uh, it doesn't always light, and sometimes it doesn't light on the second. But usually by the third strike, you can get something lit. And our explanation of it is that at Lexington, there was the shooting, and uh, and it wasn't a planned thing. It wasn't uh, it wasn't full of uh, of malice. It was uh, basically uh, two groups of green. Uh, soldier types facing each other, and there was a mistake made, and they got, sh- uh, and some people got shot. So that could, the way it could have been explained away in a courtroom if Smith would have turned around there and gone straight back to Boston. So that wouldn't have necessarily been the beginning of the American Revolutionary War. Then at the North Bridge in Concord, the colonists gave the uh, British regulars a pretty severe beating. So if Smith would have taken off right then and there and took off back to Boston before the the colonists had arrived in mass and were able to latch onto his behind, then he, once again they might have foregone anything starting that particular day, since the uh, the colonists had had basically given the British a severe uh, the regulars a severe beating. But once Smith had tarried so long and given the uh, the colonists' time to prepare and decide what they're going to do. They latched on to him like a pit bull and stayed on all the way back to Boston. 
and that is what we call the the real beginning of the American Revolutionary War. I think there's much to be said for that. I think that's about right. I my sense of that day is that those first two events in the morning um, happened very quickly, and uh, uh, nobody had quite uh, planned them. Uh, they um, they happened uh, almost by inadvertence, of, 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 again, a series of choices that people were making on the field. Uh, but then if, if things changed in the afternoon, and that was, the, was in the afternoon uh, with, with the, a long march uh, that the British column had to make now back from, from Concord, um, uh, back, first of all, to Lexington, where they met a brigade that came out to reinforce them, and then, uh, and then fly back to uh, Charlestown. Uh, where they uh, uh, where they uh, uh, made a uh, made a stand, but or, or took a, a a position on the hills uh, that would later one of them would later become Bunker Bunker Hill, and uh, that afternoon was was a long hard fought engagement, uh, and in that way was very different from these quick flashes of events in the morning. Uh, and they were engagements on a on a different scale altogether. A lot more people were were involved, and uh, they uh, it it got ugly. Uh, the uh, the people at the beginning weren't quite thinking in terms of being in a war. They were in a kind of sort of shadow area between peace and war. But at, by the as the afternoon began, uh, and uh, there was no question in their minds that 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 this was war and uh and that the other side was the enemy they weren't clear about that at the at the start i one one of the the great surprises to me was their language and i was amazed to discover that when paul revere uh, went uh out on his rides that he never said the british were coming and none of the other, we're now up to 80 riders. I had about 60, we identified about 60 when I published the book. And now we were about 80 riders who were out that uh, that night. And we uh, we know a lot about them, but and we know that none, one of them said the British were coming. And I scratched my head over, over that. What they said were things like the regulars were, were abroad. Uh, they often called them regulars, the, 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 the British troops. Or uh, if they'd gone to Harvard College, they said the ministerial troops are abroad or that sort of thing. But they never said the British. And I think the reason was that these uh, colonials still, in, uh, before the, uh, these, these events, thought that they were British. Uh, and they didn't perceive this as a difference between two nations but by the afternoon it was the british and it was us uh it was two different groups there and uh they had really changed their way of thinking about uh, uh about about themselves in that in that process and uh as the war as the the fighting uh, uh intensified um there were atrocities, uh, I think, uh, on both sides, uh, mostly these British soldiers. Uh, uh, and um, some bad things happened, particularly in the town that they called Monotomy. We, we know it as Arlington, Massachusetts. Uh, and uh, civilians were killed, uh, some of them in cold blood. Uh, and, uh, and that led people on both sides to harden their hearts. And think very differently about what was happening, as you say. That's when the 
that's when the match was not only struck but ignited, and it kept burning. I right. would also and go, oh, ahead. go ahead. No, you go ahead. Well, that was one of the one of the things that we were, that we had wanted to ask you about, and that was. <clears throat> now you had mentioned this now, and we this part of our instruction. We tell the folks about uh, Amy White and about uh, and about what happened at the North Bridge in Concord. How he made yes. his decision. Uh, to go out and uh, hack into the uh, the wounded British regular there, and yeah, uh, right, and apparently, uh, you know, apparently it wasn't just some accident or putting me out of his misery. I mean, apparently, uh, you know, it was a uh, an act of desecration, and uh, and uh, even uh, I believe that he was even scalped. And uh, that's so it was yeah. said. It's it's not clear that that happened, but uh, we know that. Uh, uh, this was a this was a a a, a, a young a youngster in in, in Concord who uh, who took his tomahawk or hatchet to, to the head of that wounded British uh, soldier and um, it may have looked as if he'd been scalped but in any right. case uh, the British were were shocked and outraged by that right uh, and that and, was the the part of the what fueled. Uh, some of the rest of the atrocities, because he did it in plain sight of several of the companies of foot that were there, of, of the grenadiers. And uh, and I'm sure that they saw what he was doing. And even if he didn't, the returning soldiers, when they crossed the bridge uh, and saw him there, I'm sure that they could tell that that wasn't, uh, that wasn't a gunshot wound. Yeah. And then and then the other atrocities followed. And, and each atrocity led to, led to the next. Uh, uh, and, and that was another kind of escalation. In the afternoon, uh, and then uh, I've got uh, I've got our boss on the line. In a minute, he's going to come and ask you some questions too. But one of the things that he and I were speaking about last night was uh, whenever the atrocities began, or, or uh, you know how they how they were looked at by, uh, say, Lord Percy, because when he got back to Lexington. Uh, or when the when Smith's column came to Lexington and uh, they were greeted by Percy, he fired the cannon and it. Uh, I believe he fired the, the cannon into the Lexington meeting house. I'm sure much as a, as a show of force, saying, "Look, we've got a cannon. Here's what the cannon does. Boom! The house is you know is shattered. We can do the same to you." And then later on, he started ordering some of the buildings burnt. Now. Uh, I've read several versions of it, and I thought that he had started burning the buildings there in Lexington because he he had been taking fire from them. That's what the British uh, said, and uh, I think there may have been there may have been truth to that. Uh, it was also clearly the case that the British were increasingly angry about the whole situation, and they were lashing out, and they couldn't tell. Uh, soldiers from civilians in 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 in, in this uh, in in this uh, engagement, uh, uh, and uh, so they lashed out at civilians in general, and increasingly did that in the afternoon, uh, and uh, that that added another another dimension to it. But uh, I think also in all of these acts, there was something else going on. Uh, these were uh, uh, people who were fighting for. Uh, very serious purposes on both sides, and uh, what happened deepened their sense of purpose. Uh, there's been a lot of writing about why men fight, why do soldiers um, uh, fight, and uh, 
uh, for a long time, the literature on that subject centered on the idea that that uh, that men at war fought for their comrades, and I'm sure there's much truth to that. But then uh, a good many historians have been reading soldiers' letters and that sort of thing. And here again, it's my friend Jim, Jim McPherson who uh, found that Civil War soldiers writing home talked about soldiering for their comrades, but they also talked about the cause. And I found it was exactly the same thing in the Revolution. That is, these men were fighting uh, for cause and comrades. And the, the cause of liberty and freedom seemed to be threatened by these events, uh, and as the events kept multiplying, the threat seemed to be more um, uh, 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 immediate, uh, 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 more uh, uh, frightening. And I think that deepened that sense of large purpose on the American side. It was also this, the ideas that the British had as well. That is, they were fighting for a principle. They often also talked about liberty. They meant liberty as the rule of law under parliament. And they saw Americans as rebels uh, against their king and parliament, and for that, for them, that was a high principle as well. Uh, and so these guys uh, uh, dug in on these principled positions, and the result was a war that was longer than World War II, at least our participation in World War II, and the Civil War put together. The American Revolution uh, lasted, depending on how you count, but... Uh, uh, eight years, and um, it was a very hard-fought struggle. We tend to sanitize it when we look back, and we forget uh, how violent it was, and uh, and its violence was sustained for such a long time because these people were were deeply in earnest about what they were doing. Right. Now, uh, I've got two things I want to say real quick. One is uh, is that... Uh, I'm having to do this. I'm having to do the show here from the computer, and it is—it's uh, refusing to submit to my authority. And, uh, <laughs> my computer does that all the time. So I'm going to have to try something here to try and get it to uh, uh, for me to uh, to bring it back within the realm, as uh, as George might say. And uh, if that happens, if I lose somebody, then uh, I will. Uh, if you, Doctor Fisher, if I if I happen to lose you, if you'll call right back, I again. will call call you right but, back. Same number. Okay, okay, because uh, otherwise I'm not going to be able to take any calls or anything. So I'm going to try and uh, and try and fix this. Now, while I'm trying to fix it, <clears throat> then uh, I would like to ask you about about the difference uh, when people talk about the American Revolution. Now, a lot of people. Uh, are talking about the American Revolutionary War. And the American Revolutionary War uh, had a beginning and an ending. But the American Revolution was something that was never designed uh, to have an ending. It was, it was meant to be a continuing expansion, uh, a continuing experiment uh, in the the freedoms and liberties according to the ideas of our founding fathers. Is this... Uh, I is think that's your take I, on it. I, I, absolutely, I think that's that's right on, right right to the center of the way I think about it. Uh, these are two different things, and they overlapped. Uh, one of them was the revolution, and the other was the War of Independence. Uh, and for me, uh, it's interesting to see the relations between the two. My my book on George Washington, Washington's Crossing, is mainly about how Washington and the Continental Army um, connected 
the revolution to the to the conduct of the war of independence uh and they did that in ways that made it more made the war into that to that, uh, to, the, to that revolutionary cause and uh i think i'd also agree that the revolution still the american revolution still goes on today that is um the our republic um that was founded in 1776 it still wasn't quite a republic in 1775 but our republic has been a kind of continuing experiment and we have to keep reinventing it from time to time and that's been a source of its dynamism and its strength we reinvented it in 1788-89 with the constitution and then we reinvented it again in 1800 with the with the Jeffersonian movement and Andrew Jackson once more in 1828, and then the Civil War, and uh, there were there have been several reinventions uh, since the Civil War. I think we're now at the point where we're going to have to be reinventing this this system yet again. And uh, but it's an open system, and it lends itself to that, and it encourages us to keep thinking about it as an experiment, always driven. By those first principles in which we were founded, uh, the principles of of liberty and freedom. Okay. Uh, the uh, bear with me just a moment. I'm still uh, I'm still trying to use uh, one hand to hold the phone and one to type. The uh, <clears throat> uh, now I've told you about the uh about our program and about the uh, uh about how we've involved you in it uh you know involuntarily and yes uh, have you had you ever heard of the uh, appleseed program i had heard of it and then um i learned more from you and several of your members who'd written to me uh, uh, uh through the past uh year i guess it has been something like that and i be I think I learned most from about the movement from our conversations on the phone. All right, and uh, okay, I'm I'm still trying to uh, I'm still trying to to make something work here uh, to get the folks to get the rest of the folks on here. Would it be better uh, if I if I hung up and called you called in again? Uh, what would what would help it to? Could, is there anything I can do to help it work? Uh, no, I I don't think so. I'm uh, uh, I'm I've kind of encountered a situation that I'm not sure I've ever encountered before. Uh, actually, uh, we may have to do that. We may have to uh, we may have to. I may have to 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 reboot, or I'm or I'm not going to be able to do anything. And uh, as much as I would love to just sit here and uh, and keep speaking, uh, I know that uh, everybody would kill me because a lot of people uh, uh, are dying to ask you some questions. So let me uh, let me see if I can get if I can get this. Uh, If I can get this out of here, uh, all right. I'm going to, uh, if, if Dr. Fisher, if you would, uh, if you wouldn't mind just uh, continuing on a solo conversation for a moment. Sure, happy to do that. And 
and tell us a bit about uh, about uh, one of the questions that one of the, the folks wanted to ask you was if you could elaborate more on the events at Miriam's Corner. Yes, that was uh, that's a crossroads um, just east of um, of the of the village of Concord. Uh, uh, the the word the, ta- the word town in New England always has a double meaning. It refers to a to a, a township, uh, uh, which will be an area of uh, thirty or fifty square miles, and then it refers to the center, that is the village. And so the the the, the British troops had got into the the the, the village of Concord, uh, and then. Uh, uh, Got into trouble at uh, at at a bridge uh, north of the town, uh, at, which was another um, a fight that n- nobody had quite expected. And then their colonel finally decided it was time to go home. His his officers had been watching this chaos unfolding, and they urged him all the way along the road to to uh, to call it off, go back. Uh, uh, it's going wrong, but. Uh, and finally, he did that about the middle of the day on the 19th. So they marched back. It was about a mile from Concord Center, from the village, to Miriam's Corner. And there's a high hill above that road, and along that hill were, were militia. And nobody quite knew what to do. Uh, there were no shots exchanged until the British got to Miriam's Corner. Uh, and there, there was more open ground. <clears throat> there were more American militias streaming in from towns all over eastern Massachusetts, even some from uh, from New Hampshire. And um, as these men arrived, um, somebody fired a shot. And once again, it's a bit mysterious as to as to how that happened, um, I think um, uh, most people agree that at Concord, a, a British soldier fired the first shot. Um, but um, it's not quite clear what that is at the Concord North Bridge. But it's not quite clear what happened at Tamiri's Corner. And uh, I, I, I have uh, several eyewitness accounts. Uh, and uh, some of the British said that an American fired first. Some of the Americans said that a, a British soldier had fired first. But there was one American who was uh, a, a, um, an officer named Brooks, uh, who also ag- agreed that it was probably an American who did that. And, then, and when that happened, maybe by inadvertence, um, who knows, there were so many soldiers streaming in there from different directions. Or um, uh, maybe it was an intentional act, but... Uh, what happened next, everybody agrees on, and that was that the British infantry fired a volley back again. Uh, they were firing high all day. These uh, these British troops often had not much experience. They were green, uh, and they were firing high, and, um, and uh, I don't believe they hit anybody on that first volley. But then the Americans um, fired back, and uh, some of these Americans were men of more experience, um, and they were used to uh, to weapons, and um, they did not fire high, and the British began to take casualties. Right, and uh, we it, we talk about that now in in the in reading your book. You know, you you mentioned that you believed that uh, from your uh, research that possibly a uh, a colonist had fired first at a great range and missed. 
and that yeah. caused the regulars to turn and fire uh, a volley at them. And we teach, uh, I'm, I don't know how familiar you are with uh, uh, with muskets, etc., but uh, a lot of us have fired them, and uh, and there's definitely the drawback of having an explosion that just happens to be placed right beside your face and your eye. Yeah. And, uh, and, then and with the black powder as well. Right. They made and them these, by the uh, white wigs, and so... <laughs> and these uh, weapons were sometimes as uncertain as our computers, right? They, they had a, yeah. <laughs> they, they, they had a. Sometimes it seemed that they had a mind of their own. Sometimes they'd, uh, uh, they'd go off uh, without people really intending, and other times they wouldn't. And uh, so there was a good deal of uncertainty in the in the use of those weapons. But I would say one other thing that uh, makes a difference in the way I think about this, I was interested to discover when I tried to make little maps and to put people on the ground uh, from the descriptions that are in their primary accounts, it, this wasn't a fight that sometimes we think of with the, uh, with the militia uh, behind stone walls right by the edge of the road. They were well back, and they were back at almost the effective range of their muskets, which uh, I believe would have been – that is, aimed fire by their muskets, which I think would have been about um, about 100 yards, something like that. Right. And, right. Uh, and so there, there was considerable uh, space uh, between them, though um, – uh, it was a, 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 a man could run um, that distance in, in not a lot of time, uh, and uh, so there were bayonet charges. Um, uh, that right, had, and that's what that's one of the things that we tell uh, tell our folks is if you want to if you want to have your mind, if you want to understand what these guys were facing, that the uh, the main weapon of the uh, the British regulars was the bayonet. They would use their volleys. Uh, in order to pr- produce a hole or uh, confusion in the other line, and then they would charge and close ranks uh, with their their enemies and use the bayonet as their main uh, weapon. Now I they could run, they could make that uh, 100 yards in about the time it took you to reload. Almost, so if you yeah. weren't knocking them down at between 70 and 100 yards, then they could close with you and be in your ranks. I think that's right, and um, uh, some Americans had no idea how quickly that could happen. <laughs> yeah, uh, and and, uh, and they they were surprised. I would say that the British also used musketry in other ways. Uh, uh, they uh, had many different formations, firing formations. Uh, one of them was called street firing, and they used that in enclosed spaces uh in the British Empire in seventeen seventy five there was no uniform police force except the British army, and so they were responsible for keeping order all over the empire, often in towns and they would form up for volley firing uh when they were facing a a, a mob um and uh each one rank would fire and then it would file back around the other uh, the other ranks. Uh, and they could keep up a pretty continuous fire that way, though it wasn't aimed fire. And as I, I noticed, and other other people have noted that they had no um, in in their uh, uh, in, in their manual arms. They had no uh, command for take aim. It was ready fire. 
and uh, but they they could use massed fire very effectively, right? Uh, and, and sometimes sometimes did that, right? And I I tell the folks uh, I tell the the people who attend that in every case that I've seen of the the colonials and the British regulars meeting head to head one on one in basically uh, at even odds that American marksmanship turned the tide because the colonials I say Americans the colonials didn't use uh, they they didn't use the bayonet as their main uh, as their main weapon plus they weren't soldiers if they were using the their muskets they were using them to hunt and you you can't bluff or threaten a rabbit into the pot with a bayonet you have to hit it yeah yeah and uh, this would be even more the case later in the in the war when the riflemen arrived um uh, these men in New England were rarely armed with rifles. They were armed with, or, or with all sorts of weapons, but uh, but rarely that. The rifles that would be used later had no um, had no bayonets at all. They they couldn't even they couldn't even uh, fix a bayonet on the end of of, of, of most of their rifles. Uh, but uh, the Americans all the way along had been trained to to marksmanship, and I have uh, sections of my book on their training, which was more serious than I think. Some people have thought, and then in these um, in these uh, engagements, the Americans were instructed to to fire at the reddest coats, the reddest coats, because the British officers uh, and the British, as the British said, other ranks. They don't use the phrase enlisted men, but the the uh, the other ranks wore uh, red coats that were made from a vegetable dye, and it faded. And uh, after a few well, weeks or months in the field, it would be a very pale, sort of dusty, uh, pinkish red. And but the officers made had red coats that were made from uh, scarlet dye, from a be- from the cochineal uh, beetle, and they uh, remained bright uh, for a much longer uh, uh, period. And so the the Americans were were instructed to to fire at those reddest coats. And they brought down British officers um, in these engagements. The, the, the casualties amongst the officers were very heavy on the British side. This happened right. from from uh, from, uh, 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 from actually the, the from from uh, the day of Lexington Concord all the way uh, through through the war. All right. Well, Doctor Fisher, we have uh, I have successfully. Uh, managed to uh, shut down everything and then uh, and reboot it, and uh, I didn't. As far as I know, I didn't lose anybody. So, would you mind taking a few calls now? Uh, I'd be happy to do that. All right. Uh, we have the uh, the gentleman who has uh, who started the Appleseed program, and uh, we all call him Fred. Fred, welcome to the show. Thank you. Uh, Hi, Fred. I- <laughs> How are you doing, um, Dr. Fisher? Can I uh, immediately thank you for taking the time to to be on the radio show? Well, it's a pleasure it's, to uh, talk. I, just call me, Dave. When people around here, uh, one thing about New England is that we don't think words like doctor and professor should be uh, words of address. Uh, and when people call me professor, I usually know that I've done something wrong. I <laughs> uh, hear you. Um, uh, I read your book a long time ago, and um, before I read your book, I'd read a number of books on on April nineteenth, and and uh, I must say the 
I know this is gilding the lily, but uh, I was very impressed with the scholarship in your in your book. There's a number of things, though, that if you don't mind, I'd like to, I'd sure, like to maybe but, ask you and just, just see what you have to say about it. Uh, first, let me point out one thing in your book that I thought really summarized what our program is about. Uh, and I know you've talked with Scout before, and you, you understand, I think, that we are – uh, we use rifle marksmanship, teaching the tradition of rifle marksmanship to sort of hook our fellow Americans to um, join us for a weekend. And during that weekend, uh, while we're teaching them rifle marksmanship, we also we also tell them the story of April 19th. And we tell them that because um, <clears throat> we explain to them that while they may come out uh, primarily to learn how to shoot their rifle, that, that actually what they're doing is they're participating in a tradition. It's a it's a great American tradition that goes right back to the to the uh, early days of the country. And um, you probably haven't seen one of our shirts. And, and by the way, Scout, we need to send him a shirt. Uh, 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 Dave, would you mind yeah. telling us what size shirt you wear? Uh, well, I wear a 16 and uh, I, I wear a size 17 uh, collar. Uh, and I, I a, a large or extra large, uh, one of the two. Okay. Well, I'll, I'll send you the. Uh... A T-shirt and a uh, and a good sweatshirt for the uh, New England weather. Yeah, I think that would be an extra large. Okay. Okay. And I'd, I'd uh, be honored to I'd be honored to have that and and wear it. Well, I, I think so. When you see the front, because the front says in big letters, April nineteenth, seventeen seventy-five. Underneath that, it says where marksmanship met history, and the heritage was born. One of the things we point out about April 19th, one of the important things, is, there's, of course, many important things, but one of the important things was the fact that our guys were very proficient with their firearms. And you've already touched on that earlier when you when you pointed out that our guys at Miriam's Corner uh, didn't miss. Um, and we actually... Um, we actually, in the, in the discussion of uh, uh, the North Bridge... Um, we we try and answer one of the questions that uh, has puzzled historians for a number of generations, and that's who fired the first shot at, on Lexington Green. Yes. And uh, we actually rephrased the question to say who fired the first shot, because the question is not necessarily who fired the first shot, but the question is who were the aggressors? Who were the people who... Um, yeah, I think that's... Yeah, go, sorry, didn't mean to interrupt. Okay, go, go ahead. As I said, who were the people who were the aggressors on Lexington Green? And when we get to the point in the story about uh, the North Bridge, uh, we ask a question, what caused uh, the British Army, a, you know, a well-trained army of the time, what caused them to break and run in, in, in a two-minute confrontation with uh, a bunch of shopkeepers, farmers, and, and uh, basically civilians? <clears throat> and the answer, of course, is that our guys... Uh, were very effective with their firearms, and of course you, you're familiar with the the accounts from guys in our column at the North Bridge where they talked about the British firing high, just like they did at Miriam's Corner. Yes. Um, but then we then we mentioned some numbers, and I haven't seen these numbers. I don't think in a in a book on this day, although the basic information is there. But if you look at the statistics on the British side you find that the casualties amongst the British ranks, you know, the sergeants, the privates, and the corporals, at the North Bridge was 7%. And the casualties amongst the British officers were 
Yeah, I, I think that's that's roughly. I'm sure that's right, and, and it was something like that is what happened, and it happened uh, again and again, and it was clearly evidence of aimed fire. I'm sure that's true, and of marksmanship. Well, it it shows that our guys did what they were trained to do. You mentioned earlier that they were trained to shoot at the you know the brighter coats, which were the British officers. Yes. And by gosh, at the North Bridge, they were probably not anticipating having to fight their way across the bridge. Uh, it was the British who opened fire first, so they they fired defensively, and uh, it's certainly easy to panic when somebody's shooting at you to to fire at the people who are shooting at you, and and of course the people who were shooting at you were the ranks. Uh, and as, the officers as to, probably weren't shooting. Yes, and as to the North uh, North Bridge, uh, I I think it's it, the, the closer we get to the detail. Uh, the, the 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 more important that sort of line of thinking becomes, as as you've laid it out, I, uh, it's to look at Captain Isaac Davis, who was there, and he was uh, he w- was leading a group of men from the town of Acton, just west of Concord, and he's a very interesting guy. He was actually killed there. He was one of the few American casualties at Northbridge, and uh, he was a gunsmith. Uh, and he also was responsible for training uh, his uh, his men uh, in the town of Acton before this event, and they had been uh, firing. Uh, They've been doing a lot of, uh, of of target firing for for an extended period. He really kept them at that, and so we can see how um, uh, these guys um, uh, became. Um, uh, uh, so effective with their weapons. Uh, it didn't just happen by chance, and it wasn't just that they'd been hunters who'd been uh, using weapons all their lives. So uh, many of them had, had had been doing that, but they they uh, they had had uh, leaders at Northbridge like 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 Captain Captain Davis, uh, who knew who, who knew a lot about these weapons and and prepared them to uh, prepare these men uh, for this moment. So if you look at the facts, the historical facts of the North Bridge, it seems that to me that you can say what light do these facts shed on the earlier encounter at Lexington? Yes. And I well, would suggest I would suggest that since uh, Cap- Captain Parker's men, they were all militia. There were no Minutemen there. We we all know that being you know students of this day. Uh, but they were trained to a standard that was uh, was the same as the standard that Isaac Davis and the and the other guys at the North Bridge uh, were trained to. So there's no reason to think that Captain Parker's men were somehow deficient in marksmanship. And in fact, later that day, when they met uh, uh, Colonel Smith's column on the way back to Lexington, uh, they actually showed that their marksmanship was was just was up to standard. Yes, that's right. Uh, at, you, uh, at Lexington Green, they were under orders not to fire um, from from Captain Press. We uh, kept from Captain Parker. We we know that from Paul Revere's depositions. Uh, he was passing through their ranks with that trunk full of the secret papers of the revolution that I wrote about. But mm-hmm. as he passed through, he heard Captain Parker tell his tell order his men not to fire. Uh, they said, "Lest they fire first, quote unquote, and. Um, but then, uh, as you say, in the afternoon, uh, on that hill uh, along the road back toward uh, it, it, toward Boston, they um, they 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 took the they occupied a, a very commanding um, position, 
and it, it was a high hill that looked uh, down along the along the road in enfilade. They they could fire right into the full length of the British column, and they did that. It took a toll, uh, uh, and there was nothing wrong with their marksmanship there for sure. Um, uh, if you were going to ask the question, <clears throat> who were the aggressors on Lexington Green? Uh, uh, and, and you were, and so you were to argue, but it was the Americans who were the aggressors. Then you would expect the same performance on Lexington Green uh, as occurred at the North Bridge. In other words, the Lexington Green would have been littered with uh, the bodies of British officers. Yes, I think that's true. And uh, it, it, to me, I mean, uh, we, we both know it was Private Johnson who got nicked in, uh, nicked in the leg. Not, not bad enough to keep him from walking on down to Concord and all the way back to Boston. Uh, so it was a very, very minor wound, and that was the extent of personnel uh, casualties on the British side, which suggests, I would, I would submit, that actually it's pretty clear evidence that if you're asking the question, who were the aggressors at, the North, at, at, at Lexington Green, uh, clearly, it was the British, and the Parker's men uh, basically were calling their pants down. I mean, they were not—they were not prepared. And I'm aware there's some eyewitnesses who say that Parker's unit was actually dispersing when the British uh, opened fire. In other words, uh, they had the, at least some of them had their backs to the British. Yeah. Well, I think that uh, Captain Parker was trying to uh, obey what he thought of as his instructions. They didn't quite think of them as orders because. Uh, it was such a complicated political situation, but but the the instructions from the from the, the 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 Whig leaders, the Patriot leaders on the American side, was to make sure that if or when the fighting began, that the regulars should fire the first shot. It, uh, the central figure in that was Samuel Adams, and he uh, he said, uh, uh, I, I quote from memory, he said, put your enemy in the wrong and keep him there. A good rule in politics as well as war. And uh, that's, they were trying to make sure that when the fighting began, it began in such a way that uh, Americans who were in the middle, in the center, or wherever, could decide that this was a cause that they could support. And that's what was going on at at Lexington. Uh, uh, Captain Parker had been ordered um, that that he if the if the regulars marched as everybody expected them to do again, that these American units should constitute what they called an army of observation and turn out muster, but do not fire unless fired upon. And I think that was a message that uh, that Paul Revere and his other writers were carrying as well. Uh, because we see it happening again and again. Uh, it happened at at Concord uh, Northbridge, and I think that was probably the American intention as well as the British retreat began from Concord Center down along that long stretch of the road that led to Marion's Corner, and nobody fired on them right. uh, until they got to Marion's Corner. And then I think maybe, I don't know, I really have to say I, in my book, I'm not sure who fired first at, at Burial's Corner, uh, and the the evidence is divided. Uh, I think maybe the balance of it is a little bit toward the side that the American, uh, one, one American uh, militiaman fired, but, but that's very uncertain. And, well, you also uh, have the, you also have the, even after Lexington, even after uh, the fighting at Northbridge, you have where the two sides had pulled apart. Then you still have the... Uh, the three companies of foot that had to come back from 
uh, they were they were they had gone out to a farm, right? Uh, to, uh, where, to Colonel uh, Colonel Barrett's farm. Colonel, that's right, to Colonel Barrett's farm, and, and they returned uh, back under the guns of the uh, of all the uh, the mustard militia there, and they still yeah. didn't fire because they were still under orders: do not fire first until fired that's upon. Ex- that's exactly right, and uh, and uh, we see this uh, this this sort of uh, uh, twilight zone between between peace and war. Uh, but also, what we see there is the American leaders' insistence there that um, that that the other side should uh, make the first overt, should fire fire the first shot. And it's very much there was a tradition in America that that was the way we went to war, um, and it was what uh, uh, Abraham Lincoln did in the Civil War. He was trying to rally the North to support him. It was also the way that uh, Franklin Roosevelt um, uh, tried to uh, act uh, before World War II and the way that Woodrow Wilson acted before World War uh, I. And I think that tradition is an important tradition for us to uphold, though it's very difficult in a modern world when when we have these weapons of mass destruction. Uh, And uh, so uh, some people think it's important to act preemptively. But when we act preemptively, we um, divide our own base, our own supporters, and we give an advantage to our opponents. And um, And I think the American leaders uh, in our three greatest wars, uh, that is uh, the Revolution, Civil War, World War II, knew what they were about uh, when they let us in in, in, in that way. Right, and... And you have the uh, the same thing uh, uttered by the by the folks in Concord when they were trying to make a decision on what what, what they were supposed to do, and uh, and the you know the young men wanted to rush out and start the war, and the uh, uh, the the regular militia wanted to defend the town, and the uh, alarm list wanted to pull back out. Yes. And uh, can they, I can I go ahead? Go well, ahead I was going to say that the. What the guys, what the one of the men said then, when they talked about going to start the fight, he said, "No, no." He said, "This will never do. Uh, that uh, it won't do for us to start the war. It, right. it has to be forced upon us for us to look right. Otherwise, we're rebels and, and we deserve to be put down." Yeah, and then it's interesting to see the general gauge on the other side. I I've always tried to empathize with people on both sides, even as I. Uh, would always think of myself as supporting the American Revolution, but uh, General Gage was a decent and honorable man. But he thought that that he saw big trouble coming, and thought that the thing to do was to stop a war before it started by making a series of preemptive strikes designed to disarm uh, the American militia, to uh, particularly to get it to, to get in his hands uh, uh, their artillery. Um, he was particularly worried about that. And it was those series of preemptive strikes that actually triggered this whole thing. Uh, and we can see, again, how preemption failed for, for, for General Gage. Uh, the, Dave, the old... can I ask you a question that I haven't really seen addressed in the books? Go ahead, Fred. On this day, particularly since you just got through saying that you uh, you try to empathize with everybody, and, and uh, you know, I think that's a pretty pretty decent way to try and understand uh, you know what happened on that day. Um, if you take a certain set of facts, starting with Gage ordering his, uh, Gage and his orders, 
uh, emphasize that the, the British really were not supposed to start anything. They were supposed to be polite and courteous to the, any of the Americans that they encountered. And then we go to the British uh, officers, uh, of which there are numerous instances of, of, I guess you could call it the usual military attitude that, you know, we can handle these rebels if they'll just uh, take the handcuffs off, let us burn a few towns, and, uh, and uh, you know, send them a lesson. And then you have the British officers uh, also despising their men. And then what happens at Lexington, but there's a big fracas. And I'm I'm wondering if some of those British officers didn't think to themselves, you know, this could be something that could really harm my career. How am I going to get out of this? I and think there may true. be there may be a minor uh, you know conspiracy of silence to the extent that uh, you know all, all the I, I bet the first officer who said, well, the men were out of control, every other officer's ears immediately pricked up and said, this is the answer. Well, I think and that's so right. It, Go ahead, Fred. It was pretty easy for them to, you know, to, to form a united front and blame blame the men. Now, in your, in your book, of course, you you know you point out that uh, from at least one one account of a, of a British foot soldier that they you know they were they were they were regular men. They weren't necessarily all they were not necessarily what their officers thought of them. You know, the officers who despised them thought they were dogs. You know, this kind of stuff. Uh, but they. I'm just wondering if there's a possibility that on Lexington Green, uh, the British regulars got a bad rap. Well, I, I think they. I, I think tell they. You, I, find, I find it very hard to believe that a the two units there. I think there were two companies there. I think it was the Fourth and Tenth Light Infantry. I find it very hard to believe that those guys would start firing volleys without orders. Yeah, well, that's puzzled, that puzzled me as well. But on the first part of what you said, I agree entirely. I mean, I. I, I, the more we learn uh, from their own words, and it's amazing how many uh, sources there are for all of this, but the more we learn from, from the, their own words who these British uh, um, soldiers were, privates, uh, and also who their officers were, that um, that they become much more complicated, interesting people and uh, with their own purposes and so forth. And I think one of them was uh, they were not uh, thrilled to be um, – of, of, to, to, to be in this sort of, a, of, of an altercation, even though the British Army through the 18th century had been doing that again and again, trying to keep order all over the empire. But, but uh, they thought, it, when, as things really began to heat up here, and they were not fighting a small a mob of rioters now, but they, they were up against uh, a people in arms. And um, they, I think they felt that there was no professional honor uh, or distinction to be gained by victory over people who were regarded as, their word was peasants or something like that. But what happened if the victory went to the peasants? So this was a no-win situation for these British officers who were thinking in terms of their, of the, of their honor and, and their professional uh, careers and uh, I, a great many of these guys gave up uh, and went home, as did uh, one of the most uh, interesting and, and uh, able of these of their officers, who was uh, uh, Lord Percy, who um, uh, I think comes out with with uh, doing uh, with more um, uh, credit than almost anybody else. But finally, he got fed up with the whole American Revolution, resigned his commission, and went home. Right, and uh, and there were quite a number of other uh, soldiers who did that. Uh, in, in the war, but I would also just say one word about these private soldiers. Uh, they've been taking a lot of abuse in Boston. Uh, 
uh, they've been on the on the receiving end of brickbats and insults. Um, uh, there were b- b- religious conflicts there. Uh, more than a few of these guys were Catholic, and uh, and there was there was a there was much uh, 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 people. They, they, they were being uh, these Irish Catholics were being attacked by by New England Protestants uh, in ways that uh, that deepened a kind of, a kind of anger amongst these British uh, these British soldiers. Uh, so uh, I think that was going on as as well. Well, I've seen, I, I can tell you that uh, there's a huge difference. The troops, the British regulars that showed up at Lexington Green were all green troops. Now, they were professional soldiers. They'd been soldiering for years, but yeah. they had never been in combat. So what you have is a situation where you have a bunch of guys who've never been in combat, but, they are, but they're psyched up for their what they might believe is their first combat. That... Uh, that on top of exactly what you were speaking about, which is they'd been taking years of abuse, and they they had seen Gage letting the uh, the colonials get away with stuff, and them getting the lash on their backs for for almost the same kind of stuff, and then when you have folks that don't that haven't been in combat, that uh, that haven't seen the elephant, and you have them facing other people who uh, who haven't been in combat. You have two groups of folks that are green facing each other with loaded firearms. That's a recipe, uh, extreme recipe for disaster, yeah. because no one knows what to expect. Now, were they tro- if they had been troops who had just uh, come from a, a, a conflict or come from battle, if they were battle-hardened troops, I think the outcome would have been much different because... Uh, nobody would have jumped the gun. They knew they would have known exactly what to expect uh, in an armed confrontation, and uh, I don't think that there would have been uh, the uh, the unexpected firing or the firing without orders. I think that's right. I mean, there was there was a failure of discipline that I think uh, that that surprised me amongst these amongst the in these British units, uh, uh, and it, it it kept happening uh, here. Um, and we can see how green they were. There was something else that one could add to that, um, which is the I think some of their officers, most of their senior officers, and probably some of the senior noncoms had had um, uh, had experience of the last big war, which um, in, 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 in European history is called the Seven Years' War. We call it the French and Indian War. And that was a war that ended with an incredible triumph for British arms. They... Um, after many defeats, uh, they uh, won uh, major victories all over the world. And after that, they were these British soldiers who'd been there. Howe, Gage had all been part of that. They were riding high. They um, and there was a little bit of what the Japanese in World War II um, explaining what happened to them at Midway uh, called victory disease. I think there's a Japanese word for that, Suribayashi, or something, I, 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 which I probably garbled. But uh, I think there was a little bit of victory disease amongst some of these British commanders, um, even as their men were very inexper- were without uh, experience, as, as you say. Right. Well, Dr. Fisher, uh, Dave, <laughs> we want to thank you very, very much uh, for. Uh, 
agreeing to come onto the show and sharing your knowledge with us and uh, and I'm uh, and I'm wondering if uh, you might consider uh, attending uh, one of the Appleseed events uh, near to you at some point uh, this year. Well, I'm booked solid with other events, uh, particularly in April, which is a a, a, a busy a busy time in in my business. But well, uh, but I'd I'd like to continue in one form or another. And if I could start by suggesting, if if anybody's listening in, and I I know a number of, of people. Uh, in 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 the uh, in, in your in your groups have have read my book. It, uh, uh, send me an email. Um, uh, let me give you my email address. It's uh, dhfisher at comcast.net. That's uh, dhfisher at comcast.net. And uh, send me an email. You know things about these subjects that I don't know, and I'd, I'd like to to learn learn from from your knowledge. Uh, and I'd also just like to like to hear from you. So, uh, so, so please, please do that. I'd, I'd really like to to be in touch uh, that way. Well, you got Dave, a deal. Dave, can, can, I'd like to thank you too. And and uh, I, I don't know. Uh, Scout said something about we might be able to extend the program a little bit. I don't know if we got time to do that or not. But let me just let me just mention one thing that struck me in your book, and that was uh, go ahead. Actually, the first sentence in your epilogue, where you say the cost turned out to be very high. Higher perhaps than our generation than higher perhaps than our generation would be willing to pay. And I, I got to tell you that that more or less sums up our Appleseed program, uh, because what we're trying to do is trying to rekindle the American Revolution that should be existing in every American's heart. Uh, you remember John Adams' famous famous quote about uh, you know posterity you'll never know the sacrifice our generations made for your for your liberty uh, if you ever forget uh, we'll be sorry we ever made the effort in substance that's what he said and uh, actually I think you could probably truthfully say that the American Revolution is pretty much forgotten I mean if you were to walk out of your house and your neighbor's out mowing the yard and you walk over there and you say hey what about that American Revolution uh, he'd probably look at you like you like you've suddenly gone nuts and at Appleseeds, where I tell the story, when I get to the part where I say historians have counted 14,000 uh, armed Americans, uh, you know, moving toward Concord at dawn on April 19th, I always pose the question of um, um, if you found out tonight at midnight that there was going to be a, a threat to liberty so great that at dawn tomorrow that you would have to uh, respond, how many, how many of your fellow Americans could you get to respond and well, uh, I, say, let's, I say, let's make it easy. They got 14,000, but, of course, they didn't have phones. They didn't have the Internet. They didn't have fax machines. I said, let's make it easy. How many of you guys could get 10,000? And, of course, nobody raised their hands. And I'll say, how many of you can get 1,000? And nobody well, raised I, their hands. And I usually get down to around 10. I'll go to 100, <laughs> and then I'll go to 10. And finally, about you know, when I say 10, some people will raise their hands. But that's that's the difference. Between now and then, in fact, I asked them, I said, What's the, how do you measure the value of liberty to a society? Don't you measure it by the amount, the, the number of people who are willing to turn out to defend it? And if so, what does that say about the society of 1775, and what does that say about our society today? Well, I would say one word there, or whatever historian says, one one word he means a, a, a <laughs> deluge of words. But uh, what I what I I was going to say was that uh, 
that uh, on the subject of, of, of our generation, uh, uh, my views have been changing about that a little bit, and uh, I, with, with some experiences that have grown out of the, the, the books I've written and the conversations with others. One, one thing that happened to me was um, uh, about, I guess it was two months ago or so, I was invited, uh, greatly honored, uh, to come and talk uh, to the senior class at West Point uh, about leadership in the American Revolution. Uh, and they were they were particularly interested in my book Washington's Crossing, but uh, but in both in both that book and, and the Paul Revere book, and uh, I met a fair number of, of these young people and uh, talked with them. Uh, they um, will this time uh, next year um, be um, in the field. Uh, the U.S. Army, their officers told me, the U.S. Army is now on the ground in 160 countries around the world. Uh, and in many of those countries, they're on the sharp end. Uh, and uh, these young people, I, uh, it, it was interesting, my wife was with me, uh, 20% of these young uh, West Point seniors are women. And I think uh, that uh, they measure up to any American generation. And that the idea that our generation uh, is um, somehow... Um, uh, inferior to the generation of Paul Revere and the and the militia, or to the or to let's say the what uh, Tom Brokaw calls uh, with good reason uh, with some reason the greatest generation. I think the the the, the generation that's coming uh, that I met at West Point can 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 it, it looks very good by even those high standards. So I'd be more hopeful now about that and. Um, I, I I find that I go around. I teach at a lot of universities. I visit, speak of these things, and everywhere I go, I find the same, the same quality in the young people of this of this republic. Uh, so I'm much more optimistic uh, after I after I talk with them, and hopeful for our future. Right, and that. I I feel the same way as far as, you know, you think that uh, if you listen to the mainstream media, you read the papers, uh, on and on, then you fall into this impression that uh, that uh, uh, that Americans are all ugly and worthless, etc. And then we have an Appleseed event, and, uh, and 20, 30, 40, 70 people will show up. And you know what? The people that come to an Appleseed event are the absolute best people uh, I've found that the nation offers. And that strengthens my belief uh, every, at every event. That's why I keep doing them, because I get, keep to get meeting, keep to uh, continue meeting uh, these people that, uh, that care about the nation, that, uh, uh, that, uh, that want to do something uh, to help safeguard uh, the freedoms and liberties that the founders left for us. So yeah, uh, and you know, I'd say something else, which is that I've been uh, asked to come down to Washington and talk with leaders of both political parties. I, I'm a card-carrying independent in my politics, and I don't want to talk politics tonight. But uh, but when I talk with these uh, with these political leaders one-on-one -on -one about uh, large questions, they are very impressive people. Uh, and they get a very bad press today. Uh, people love to make fun of the Congress and so forth. But when you actually talk to them 
and see their purposes. And uh, I come away uh, with a high feeling of their uh, of their integrity and their seriousness that I did when I I I, I meet when I when I meet young young people in this country today. So. Uh, so uh, I think there's 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 great strength in the in in, in this republic. Uh, we've got our problems in in a, in a major way, but we've got great assets. Most of all, the greatest American asset are the American people, and uh, that's that's what I that's what I come to think. Dave, would it be fair to say though that there's a a lot of ignorance amongst Americans of their, yes, I, of their history and their heritage? Yes, I. I, and, I, I uh, are we stronger as a people, or are we weaker as a people if we don't know about our history and our heritage? I think that I agree entirely on that, and I think that uh, uh, people who who uh, uh, don't remember their history are like um, an individual person who has amnesia. A, a, a person with 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 complete amnesia can could scarcely function in the world. And I think that applies uh, to to uh, groups of people and to their history as well. So that's why I do what I do. And um, I find that a lot of people are getting interested in history. A lot of people are not. And there's there's good news and bad news about that. Uh, where uh, 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 even as uh, I think uh, uh, more students now. Uh, well, let me start again and say the the American Historical Association keeps records of this, and they find that uh, history courses, history enrollments, history degrees are at a 30-year high in all American universities as a whole. Uh, and uh, there's more of a market for for serious history books than there's been for a while. But then we're not reaching other people. And uh, that's a puzzle. And I think what you're doing is a is a s- important step along the way to uh, to spread that that word, spread the word uh, to uh, to get people engaged. Uh, and that can be done in a lot of ways. And and uh, the more we do that, the stronger we'll get. Uh, I'm I'm convinced that that's that's the case. Well, Dr. Fisher, we told you that we're having uh, over a thousand events this year, and. And we teach right out of your book, and we tell folks uh, where we're getting the information, and we we tell them that uh, that if they want to find this information, where they can find it in your book. So when you buy your next house off the proceeds of Appleseed, we want you to put a big <laughs> plaque in the yard that says Appleseed Project. <laughs> Maybe a better thing would be to plant an apple seed. <laughs> there you go. Well, Dr. Fisher, thank you so much. Well, thank you, Fred. It's a pleasure to talk. Thank you. And uh, and I will certainly keep in touch you with you with the emails and uh, and I hope that we can do this again and I hope that we'll get uh, we can get you to come to an event. So I want to thank you uh, thank you very much for this and for the rest of the folks. uh, I'm trying to open up the uh, continuation of the show program. So if you guys will give me a few minutes, then you may have to uh, log back on to it. But uh, uh, if you'll give me just a few minutes, we'll try and get the uh, show back up and running. All right. Well, thank you, Dr. Fisher. You have a, uh, you have a wonderful evening, what's left of it, and uh, we hope to speak to you in the future. Well, that would be great. Uh, enjoyed it very much. All right. Uh, nice talking. Bye-bye. All right. Good night, Good night everyone. All right. I'll, uh, I will see you guys hopefully in just a few minutes. All right. Bye-bye. Okay, bye.
like I said. You two were snoring, and that's Doug's job. <laughs> I had my you. I had my thumb over the Oh yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> 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 I'm not letting you go, Jesus. <laughs> 